another episode of A Simple Life with Michael Jeffries. This is episode eight. On this podcast, we attempt to let go of all the subtext and social barriers that hold us back. I'm not trying to be right or wrong. I'm just trying to keep it real. In today's episode, nothing new. It has been a real, a real... Uh, exercise in me pushing myself to think about it, script it, record it, and then really have the courage to post it because um, one of the things I'm working through in my life right now is to be myself in spite of other people not liking it. That's something that I've struggled with uh, for as long as I can remember. And in today's episode, if you read the title, <laughs> I'm dealing with some um, some subject matter that's not just controversial. There's two controversial subjects that I'm attempting to talk through, both religion and its link to climate change, two things that are very divisive, especially at this time in our history as humans and in this place. Um, here in the United States and in my context. Uh, just a couple of notes before we get into it. If you are triggered by religious talk or you're just bored by it, um, this might be a right, the right episode to skip altogether. Uh, another thing uh, that I, it was interesting, as I recorded this episode, I listened back to it and I found that I used the word dissonance a lot. <laughs> and um, that was a funny realization and interesting too to kind of observe that about myself that apparently dissonance is a word I'm really into right now. And you'll hear it several times throughout the episode. Um, and that was fun to kind of realize that as I listened back to it. I'd also like to just be real um, at the outset and admit um, that I clearly have some baggage and forgiveness that I still need to work through um, as evidenced by my fixation on what I see wrong with the new evangelical and fundamentalist sects of the Christian tradition. And those were sects of the Christian tradition that I, I grew up in. So it's their, the baggage is particularly close, and the forgiveness that is needed is particularly important uh, for my continued growth and search for um, goodness. Um, and just to be, just to just to be honest, in my experience, all faith traditions have strengths and weaknesses, and if um, if you're if I'm too harsh on evangelical and fundamentalist sects of the Christian tradition, I, uh, I apologize and I would welcome uh, feedback to, to help me better understand and forgive and let go of that baggage. And I'd also just say, if you come from a different uh, tradition, as you listen to, the, to this episode, maybe consider trying to replace words like Bible, evangelical, and similarly, you know, similar tribal words uh, that come up. 
and switch them to coincide with their equivalent tribal words in your context um, to see if the overall discussion um, holds value for you or, or changes in any way. Um, that would be really interesting for me to know. And if I was listening to something, that's what I would want to be trying. And lastly, I just really liked how, as I listened back to this, and I'm interested in, in, um, in opinions as well, but I loved how um, in this whole discussion, what we arrived to was this idea that when we as humans each embrace our own unique creative expression, really wonderful things uh, can happen. And that's very comforting to me. Um, so with that, we'll uh, get into the show. go. This is going to be interesting because I've I've laid out my notes for today's episode yeah, a little bit differently than I've ever done for another episode. And I think that's because I'm talking about something that I feel I have feelings about, I have opinions about, but I know that I'm probably short-sighted about a lot of it and only speaking from my own context and um perceptions of the world and also experiences as a human up into my life thus far. So I know that there's a lot of subjectivity throughout this. So what I've tried to do is minimize some of that and organize what I'm going to talk about into an initial claim, some historical evidence for that claim, some physical evidence for the claim. What truth can we bring? Can we, um, add to our lives by understanding these things um, and then um, sort of an application of that truth, if it is truth, and then um, to, to ensure that I keep uh, the theme of this podcast alive, I'm going to share my personal applied truth. Um, and what, how that relates to me personally with, with my context and kind of going into a little bit of that of how did I get to these opinions and helping you as the audience are pick out some of the baggage and what has led me to think this way. Um, and my goal there is to, number one, make another episode um, because I enjoy this. And number two, really give myself an opening to understand other people's truths as it relates to this issue and um, sort of open a door for a dialogue around this topic. I, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous because this is a topic that there's a lot of emotions in our society around and in our world, really. It's not just in our particular society and culture, but this is... Uh, a recurring thing around the world among different societies and cultures that interact with each other. And we're fi we find fault with each other around the, this issue quite a bit. 
And the issue is how we treat Mother Earth as humans and our approach to that. And we can see differences culturally and societally, even historically, the way the Native Americans talk about Mother Earth. They have a very matriarchal relationship with the Earth. She gives, she takes away. And um, Christians have a different relationship with the Earth. The, the, the Earth, um, from a Christian perspective, is a gift from an external God given to us that we are to take care of. Um, and it is a gift for us to either abuse or to nurture and, and God over, really. It's our responsibility to take care of the earth in that context. And um, if you look throughout the ages, at least from what I can see, every society has an idea around Mother Earth um, and how we should treat her in our interactions and opinion of her whether you live in modern times or not. Um, and I think one of the kitschy, catchy ways I could term this episode is what climate change really is or what we are seeing um, from the earth today as we interact with her based on our actions. And so that's our theme for today. And so I'll get right into it. So the claim that I want to make is that climate change as we know it is part of the Earth's cycle of life. Um, and we are a big part of the sin that creates this cycle of life. And I want to be careful how I use that word sin because there's a lot of baggage attached to that word, depending on the traditions, especially the spiritual or religious backgrounds we all come from. Sometimes that, uh, label sin we get confused by it um and so just to put some some context or some definition around that when i say sin i'm talking about uh the results in our lives as a species and as individuals that we receive and have in our lives when we don't work through and let go of and be honest with ourselves about emotions, very powerful but negative emotions like fear, greed, hate, guilt. Um, these, And I don't have an extensive list. I don't know what all the negative emotions are, um, but I do see sin that happens within us as humans when we overindulge in negative emotions like fear, greed, guilt greed, hate, and guilt. Um, and in climate change as humans, we can see that by our invention and use of plastic. We invented it, and now we know um, the long-term ramifications of using plastic and what that does to our Earth um, and us as a species on that Earth. Similar with our use of oil, um, Really, it's about overindulgence, right? Um, and that is us. We're overindulging in um, meat um, and really poorly, poorly uh, cultivated meat. Um, cows, we eat a lot of beef in the modern world. And cows, um, before they're butchered, they 
they put hoses down their throats, at least this is big factories, they put hoses down their throats and pump them full of water. Um, similar to the sort of treatment if you're opposed to the way ducks are fed to enlarge their liver for foie gras. Um, if you have a problem with that, you should have a problem with the way beef is um, produced in normal in normal beef farms. Now, this not all beef farms are like this. We buy our beef from a farmer locally who does a great job, and he, to my knowledge, does not overinflate the weight of his cows um, in a greedy way. And that's what it's really all about. So the farmers, these feedlots, will force feed water into the cows before they're butchered to artificially inflate their weight um, with all this water content when they're butchered so that they can receive more money. And really it's just water weight. There's not really nutritional value there. So it's it's letting us down as fellow humans for them to sell this wheat or meat. It's also um, uh, not really nice to the cows as a uh, fellow species on the earth that is going to feed us and take care of us and give their life for our nutritious benefit. And we can see these behaviors that we have as humans over and over and over again. Our use of nuclear energy. I think nuclear energy is a great idea. It's efficient. Um, it's relatively clean. Um, you know, as opposed to other energy uh, um, production ways that we have, or at least when nuclear was invented. The problem that we have, though, is <laughs> nuclear waste... Uh, we have no long-term design solution for nuclear waste. And nuclear waste lasts hundreds of thousands of years in a poisonous form for our Earth and for us as a species and for other species on the Earth, for other human or living um, beings. And so we selfishly overindulge in energy consumption, needing things like nuclear power or uh, uh, similar things that don't have a full design life cycle on them. Um, and justify that in certain ways. Um, other animal species that I can see at least on the earth do not overindulge in this way. They do not stockpile wealth um, to make sure that they are going to abate all their fears for f the future. Um, so that they're taken care of in old age, right? They live for the day. Um, and the only planning that we can see in the animal kingdom, really, in stockpiling, is they they go one winter season at a time. A winter season is a time of, of um, renewal and rebirth and sleeping and resting. The Mother Earth does that for herself in the season of winter. And we see humans or other animals recognizing that and stockpiling um, resources, food, shelter, clothing, warmth um, uh, during that renewal period that Mother Earth goes through in her seasons to survive that. And we as humans have become so good at stockpiling that we can not only stockpile for one winter season at a time, we can stockpile for years and years and years at a time. Um, and really, we see evidence of how we have a 
an overabundance of fear, greed, hate, and guilt in our lives by our daily behaviors. And I'm, I'm, I, it sounds like I'm passing judgment right now, but I'm guilty of these things as a human as well. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that I don't have an overabundance of fee, fear, greed, hate, and guilt. Um, I overindulge regularly. And I think we as humans uh, all have these areas of dissonance in our lives to one degree or another. And in some areas of our society, it's more pronounced than others. The overweight person is overindulging in food. The drug addict is overindulging in their drug. The alcoholic is overindulging in alcohol. The worrier and stockpiler of wealth is overindulging in their fear that their community will not take care of them in the future. Um, we could go on and on with examples, but what we are led back to is letting things like fear, greed, hate, and guilt um, control us um, and not working through those negative emotions and letting them go. Um, and letting ourselves lean on the day and our community should times get rough and to stockpile for one winter season at a time, right? To understand that there are times of short-term um, need to plan and, and store and um, save and conserve, but it's not for years at a time. I, at least I don't think from what I can see, the earth is really not made for us to be able to do that. Okay, so we've made our claim. Um, I'll try and move a little bit faster. Uh, <laughs> um, so now let's move on to historical evidence. So we there's historical evidence here because of the global mythological alignment of of in mythology across spiritual traditions and time. Really, we have archetypal myths and themes within our myths as cultures and societies that transcend belief structures, um, religious uh, popularity of the day. Uh, um, so, and, and I'll, I'll share my own historical context and background, which is the, trish, the Christian tradition. Um, in the Christian tradition, depending on who you ask, I was raised in the New Evangelical Movement, which says you should read the Bible um, literally, for the most part. If you don't read the Bible literally, or at least you're open to reading some of the Bible as myth, or as things we can learn by interpretation, even if it's literal, there's also some interpretation that we can add. So keep that in context. That's what I'm going for here, when I use the word myth, not to invalidate the scriptures, if you come from a a Christian background. And for those of you who don't, hopefully this gives you some context for Christians in your life and the, the background that they might have if they grew up in the, the American New Evangelical sect of Christianity, which is how I grew up. Okay, so in that context, the New Evangelical sects, um, Christian traditional tradition context, Earth's beginning 
we have the myth of the story of the Garden of Eden, before human sin ruined things. And in that story, we see humans being created by a God and all the things on earth to be created by that same God to allow the humans to have these gifts. And the humans are charged to be stewards of the earth and take care of the earth. And they're given all of the abundance of earth to take care of them. And they're told one thing is, you're not, you're allowed to have as much life as you want. You have immortality. The only thing you're not allowed to do is know the difference between good things and bad things. And if you can resist the temptation to know the difference between good things and bad things, right? This, this moral subjectivity or moral objectivity, if, from the Godhead's perspective, from their understanding of the external God. If you can resist that sin, then you can have eternal life, eat of the fruit of life, eat of the other fruits of the garden. Um, all of creation is getting along with each other, right? We have this in those stories of, of um, the Bible's version of the idyllic world where the lions and the lambs will lie down together. There will be an end to violence. There will be love. We see that in the Christian tradition's myths, including the Garden of Eden. And we see how humans were tempted by an external devil, the serpent, to, um, to question God's direction and to question if that they you know, didn't want to know that moral objectivity or subjectivity, depending on your frame of reference, they wanted, it would be better for them to eat of the tree of good and evil and to know the difference between right and wrong. And um, they, in the story, succumb to that temptation. And that's how sin enters the world and all of the negative things that come with that and why we as humans then need a savior and why Jesus had to come and, blah, you know, it spawns from there. That's the beginning of the world. And then we see a, uh, a middle checkpoint in the Christian tradition where the, the world just got so evil that God had to hit a reset. And that is the mythological story of Noah and the flood. There is a renewal, a purging of all the evil in the world, and a resetting of God and his holy people on the earth's surface. And he used that through the earth's rising, drowning all of life except for all of the beings, both human and animal and otherwise, that Noah had with him on the ark. And the earth starts over. Um, and then we have the, the in the Bible, in the Christian tradition, um, New Evangelical reading, at least, is in Revelation. John, the Apostle John, um, it, it, Revelation is basically his Armageddon prophecy. It's the, the myth or the prophecy because it's the future. So we can use that word, I guess, interchangeably of how the world will end, how God will return, redeem all the good people, cast out and remove all the bad people and bring love and goodness back to all, all of everything put right everything that has gone wrong. So here we have in the Christian tradition myths that demonstrate Earth's beginning, Earth's renewal, Earth's end. And we have these myths 
across religious traditions and across histories, religious traditions, really. We have flood myths throughout um, these, these traditions. We have stories of the beginning of the earth throughout um, uh, religious traditions. And we have stories of earth's end or myths or prophecies or however you want to put it um, about earth's end. All major religions have these end-of-world renewal and rebirth stories, um, and some may call them myths, I think, is, is where I'd like to at least allow us as a group of humans that have different points of view and come to these things differently. Let's at least agree that we can see them over and over and over again um, as archetypal themes of within our religious traditions, how we try and make sense of the world. Uh, we also, let's move on to physical evidence. So if this is a truth, then couldn't we see these imprintations on the earth herself? Um, in human experience, we can measure some of these things. We can see um, evidence on the earth of, of these truths, if they are truths. And I think there is some historical evidence here. If you watch, there's a great documentary about the Great Lakes, lake bottoms. I, I live in Michigan, and I grew up in Michigan. The Great Lakes surround my state. The state of Michigan has more coastline than the entire eastern seaboard of the United States. We have a ton of beaches. Um, we have a ton of beach culture. And it's a very rich part of our, of our state. And it's all fresh water, which means it's very cold compared to a lot of... of um, cold water. It's very, it's a lot heavier than salt water. And there's a lot less life or different life that lives in it. And there's a lot of preservation that takes place of the lake bottoms. And one of the coolest byproducts of that is this documentary that I watched, and I'll link it in the show notes if I remember. Um, at the bottom of some of the lakes, there, is, there are ruins uh, of Mankind. There is historical record of of um, where men have lived, where humans have lived, I should say, um, and now they are submerged underneath the Great Lakes. And we can only realize this if we accept the fact that water levels across the Earth have risen since the time of those humans, or we could just say, and this often is said, is that there's been seismic activity throughout the earth, and that's caused some areas of the earth to go, you know, beneath sea level and get submerged. And then there's other areas of the earth that there's been volcanoes, and that area of the earth has been brought up above sea level. So we have these explanations for us as humans of why the undulations, the peaks, the valleys of the earth, what lies below sea level, what lies above sea level, are the way they are without sea levels ever having risen in the past. But it could also be true that we're just not looking at the earth cycle long enough and that perhaps the, the water levels have been rising over time. And that's why we can find records of humankind living below the sea level. And that is not due to any seismic activity. That's not like some shelf with an earthquake being, you know, sunk to some 
great depth all of a sudden, and then still somehow the the human remains have been preserved in that very traumatic event. I mean, that is possible for sure, and maybe some of the human rain, remains are that. But it's, I think we should at least leave some space to um, let ourselves potentially think that maybe sea levels have been rising for quite some time and driving people out of their homes for quite some time, and that you know, flooding of the earth is something that Mother Earth does, perhaps. I don't know. Um, and there's another great um, example of this in National Geographic. There's an article, and there's a lot of articles written about this, about Yonaguni Jima, or the city ruins that are found underwater off the coast of Japan. Um, and I'm probably pronouncing that Yonaguni Jima ruin incorrectly, but it's another ruin of human civilization. Some people dispute it's not human civilization. It's just um, the way you would see rock formations um, with seismic activity or somehow the earth has affected them in that way to have those patterns. And then there's some people who say, no, there's earth, there's human markings on there. Something intelligent was making these things. And it's also submerged underwater. And there's different opinions about how it got submerged, right? And um, we've gone into some of those. Okay, so let's move on to truth. Um, and this is the truth that I can take out of this. Um, climate change, or this idea of rising sea levels of this, you know, the Earth is responding to our use of energy, our overabundant use of energy, our planning for the future, our greed, our hate, and our fear. Um, this overindulgence of consuming that we have as humans, not just taking care of today, but taking care of years, not even taking care of like a couple of months at a time, but years with our, with our savings and our mindsets and our worry, right? Our fears of the future. So the truth, climate change in our day, and this is why it's just a, uh, an opinion of possible truth. I don't know that it is truth, but could it be that climate change in our day and our ability to see it, our understanding of it, is, is the earth cycle repeating itself? And that our issue really is that we have, we are smart enough to see it happening, um, right? We have eaten enough of, in the Christian tradition, that fruit of the tree of good and evil, we can see the um, the effect we're having on the earth. We've done enough evidence and research, and now we can feel that pain and that fear that we have of how we're hurting the earth by our by our behavior as a group of humans. Uh, and then, as individuals, many of us have very strong opinions about the need to stop this behavior and take care of Mother Earth to stop overindulging and hurting Mother Earth. But really, it's very stress-inducing for us that care about Mother Earth so much because um, we don't ever seem to be able to do enough to stop it. Um, I have some friends that care about this issue so much, and they'll, they'll do everything they can. Um, they'll 
buy the right products that say that they're um, better for the earth. Um, and that's still buying a lot of products. Um, they'll feel the need to ride bike instead of drive a car um, and try and convince everybody that that's what they should be doing. Um, and really, there's a lot of, of good truth to what these people that are really, really um, scared of the Earth's pain because of the way we're treating her with our behaviors. Uh, and it's stressful um, because no matter how much we do, they do as individuals, we as humans can't seem to stop this. Or can we? And I think that's the dissonance. That's the space we have to leave. And it's the bringing us back to an earlier episode of the serenity prayer of being able to accept God, grant me the grace to accept the things I as an individual cannot change. Courage to change the things I as an individual can change. And then wisdom to know the difference. And if we can remember that, we can bring balance and emotional stability back to our lives around this difficult issue of climate change. As we see other humans not care as much as we do. And we're doing our best. And I think that's the other part of it is if you feel this dissonance, you see the hurt of human greed, hate, fear, guilt, etc. on earth, on Mother Earth, the actions you are taking as an individual, and you don't do anything to change that, of course you're going to feel some stress. And you're going to feel a, uh, a disconnection between you and the Earth. As, um, as a member of the Earth, you'll feel that the Earth is external to you or to us as a species when really we're all very connected and we need each other um, until a lot more technology happens um, and we find another viable planet or we're good enough at building our own space stations that we can escape this earth and survive on our own without the earth if we need to. We're very dependent on mother earth and we should take care of her. So that's the, the big truth, right? Um, that, I'm, that I'd like to communicate. And I really don't know if we can do enough to stop it or if we can't as a whole entire species. I really don't know. Um, and thank goodness I don't have to know all by myself. I just have to be honest with myself and do what I can as an individual to take care of Mother Earth and to leave space for how do I change my actions as an individual and be responsible for me and to train my children and to and to influence my community as best I can, and not to let my communities, those external to me, their choices really affect me or weigh on me if they make different choices than me. And that's a difficult thing. So let's move on. Applied Big Truth is the next heading that I've got for this section. So human sins, I think, are what causing this cycle of the earth of needing to have a a beginning, a renewal, an end, right? Going back to the Christian tradition's understanding, a Garden of Eden, a story of the earth's beginning, a story of Noah and the flood, of earth's renewal, of purging, of resetting. The earth needs that. And then how does that reset take place? John's prophecy and revelation of an Armageddon, humans dying, terrible, you know, volcanoes and 
earthquakes and floods and tornadoes and just the earth dealing with us. Um, and I think we can say greed, hate, fear, guilt, these human sins are what is causing this cycle. We see them in all of our spiritual traditions, religious traditions as a species. We're trying to understand them. And if these submerged human civilizations we are finding aren't the cause of, of merely just routine seismic activity sinking them, but instead systematic rising sea levels, then we're in this cycle somewhere, which, you know, we're, we have very limited historical record as humans. We like to say we, we know about the Earth's history and we have very, we, our knowledge is very opaque and limited. We have some knowledge, but it doesn't go back very far. Um, and it's very possible that we're in this cycle somewhere, and this cycle could take anywhere from thousands to millions or to even billions of years. And our life cycle as humans is just a breath within those life cycles, which is why our, even our, our ability to pass on knowledge from one generation to another is so limited and we cannot we cannot keep record of such a long earth cycle except with these myths because even our very language changes um, the flood myths regeneration of the earth with a new beginning etc could just indicate that we have been through this cycle at least once before if not several times and that is our our human ancestors trying to mythologize this knowledge and understanding and allow it to transcend language and, you know, knowledge into more of a wisdom category. Um, because really our, our religious traditions span our language traditions. Languages like Sanskrit, Latin, Aramaic, they're not spoken today. And those are languages that are not really super old in comparison to how old the earth could be. Now, maybe the earth is only 10,000 years old, as the new evangelicals claim. Maybe. And maybe the earth is way older than that. Maybe. I don't know. Um, and I don't really want to get into a fight out of, around which who is right in that debate. I think that's a meaningless debate. I'd rather find the, the larger archetypal truth if there is one to be found. Um, or at least hypothesize. Um, and who knows, maybe these, these civilizations under the Earth's sur surface or under the Earth's sea levels are really part of this cycle. And these cycles have perhaps even different lengths. And the evidence is printed on the earth, and we see it in all these mixed up and in different orders. Um, our historical record is incredibly short, incredibly opaque, uh, and so really we're making wild guesses a lot of the times uh, to try and piece it together. And that's okay. We want to do that as humans. We want to understand our context and how we fit into it all, and maybe we're just getting it wrong. And, and our our ancestors try and lay these things down in myths to transcend our even ability to language, to, to put them in language, to have them recorded in some way. I mean, even writing things down 
and not having to pass knowledge on from one tradition, from one generation to another that's not just spoken word is relatively new, even if we're only 10,000 years old, right? Like, we can see evidence of humans trying to pass on knowledge through creative expression like paintings and songs and myths, regardless of our religious tradition. We can see that evidence in the world. Okay. So, applied truth for me personally, let me get um, vulnerable and explain, you know, from my contextual background, how do I apply this truth having grown up in the new evangelical sect of Christianity within the United States. And I alluded to it earlier. As an individual, I can get stressed out about this dissonance in space between what I can do as an individual and what we as a human species are doing to protect and take care of Mother Earth so that she can protect and take care of us. Um, and I have to use a serenity prayer to guide my mental, emotional, and physical behaviors and responses to the pain I see Mother Earth experiencing because of human actions. I have to remember that serenity prayer, keeping in context what I can affect, what I can't affect, and um, a desire to understand those, those things and to have, have that space. So, and to further expound upon that, as it relates to my upbringing, I'm a second generation new evangelical Christian. Um, if you're unfamiliar with that term, you can Google it, but it's primarily marked by the generation. So my parents were brought up and saved in uh, this Billy Graham movement in America in other um, evangelists, this idea that Christians have the right answer and we need to go out and evangelize and make disciples of men and convert and women and convert people to our way of thinking. Um, both my parents, my wife's parents, a lot of people um, from their generation were brought up in this new evangelical uh, sect of American Christianity here in the United States. And it was in their lifetime, right? It kind of came out of the a separation between this the dissonance between the fundamentalist sect who are willing to turn their back on science and technology, really, um, and the moderns and the modern sects of Christianity, those who are willing to accept um, new ideas and science and technology and still find God in their Christian faith and tradition within that new knowledge. Uh, and new evangelicalism was kind of us trying to bridge that gap between modern uh, and fundamentalist Christian sects, a happy in, in the middle. Um, from what I've gathered and read, and that's just my, I'm no theologian or history of religion. I, I only have dabbled in it, but that's what I can see. Um, and Billy Graham's life, you know, he was a contemporary of, of my grandparents, which would then make him, you know, one generation older than my parents. So it would make sense that he, he could be someone that would influence their generation and create a movement if he's charismatic enough and other people like him. Um, 
and and I use him only because he's so well known and because I've what I've read about New Evangelicalism, the sect in the United States, is that you know he can be attributed to one of the the fathers or the pillars of that community, as well as many others. Um, okay, so as it relates, what is this truth as it relates to a second generation New Evangelical Christian? That's how I brought up, was brought up, and that's how my wife was brought up. So we kind of reinforce these ideas in our in our home, and they they provide a context for us. And I'm honestly have a lot of if I'm being really vulnerable. I have a lot of problems with the new evangelical sect of Christianity in America as I've matured as an adult and my human experience has expanded. I feel like there's a lot of, of dissonance in that sect and difficulties that I see. And so that's where I'm going to be vulnerable here. I'm not trying to apply this label to all new evangelicals in America. Please don't take this as blanket statements of me finding fault with everybody. This is really me being vulnerable about the dissonance in my life and my context of upbringing. And if you feel convicted by this, then please know I'm not trying to judge you. I Hopefully that conviction is just a sign that there's some dissonance in your life as well, and perhaps you should look within. Um, I'm hoping that I won't be lashed out at and that people can accept that I'm just doing the best I can. <laughs> um, and if you need to lash out, I'll try and take it. Uh, but, so that's my context, growing up with parents like that, having uh, a household with a, a wife that also comes from that background. Um, and really, the new evangelical movement that I was brought up in also had some fundamentalist Christian leaders that were influencers in um, that's unfortunate because I think there are some very difficult problems with fundamentalism in the Christian sects, in the Christian tradition, really, or fundamentalism within any religious context. If we hold too much to dogma and ideology that is outdated and doesn't keep up with the human experience as we continue to have it, um, we're so committed to the dogma that we turn our back on new knowledge. Um, that can be difficult, and we can remain in ignorance, which may be blissful, but um, we're doing ourselves a disservice, I think, if we expect to continue to um, know God more, become closer to whoever God is, the action self, to, to be able to embrace that serenity prayer, right, of asking God and receiving um, courage to change the things we can be able to receive uh, understanding, knowing what we can't change. To be able to receive that wisdom of knowing the difference, right? Um, fundamentalism stands in our way. And one of the problems that new evangelicalism and fundamentalism in Christian leaders, they do not want to admit that climate change is real. They fight against that. Um, in their dogma and in their platitudes and in their speaking points. Um, and I don't know why, other than because it's scary for their ideology. Um, or at least that's what I see, and I could be seeing this wrong with my own baggage, right? But it, I see it 
fundamentalist and new evangelical leaders having a real difficulty. They don't want to admit that climate change is real in any form or really to have anything to do with it or the discussion even. At the very least, the boundary is humans have nothing to do with it. If anything, it is something that we cannot control as humans. We have nothing to do with. The earth is going to do it whether or not we're here or not. And they could be right about that. But maybe they're wrong, and I think they need to leave space for that. Um, and that's how we see this, you know, complete desire to avoid the conversation, the discussion, even. Um, and it, I think it's perhaps because if we are to accept that we can have an effect as humans on Mother Earth and our ability to influence her health and well-being with our actions, um, it potentially spells the end of the claim of fundamentalist and new evangelical Christians um, that they have their own specific and um, personal ultimate truth, which includes this idea that a literal interpretation of the Bible is the correct interpretation of the Bible, that those myths, there's no question that they are literal things, historical records that happened. The Garden of Eden is how the earth started with an actual garden, with an actual Adam and an actual Eve, with an actual snake that tempted Adam and Eve, with actual trees that had fruit that bore the knowledge of good and evil, the you know eternal life, these different things. Um, that there was really a flood with 40 days, our understanding of 40 days, our understanding of 40 nights, that there is an Armageddon the way John lies it out, and it's all literal, complete. There's no interpretation needed other than a literal interpretation. And if we talk about the Earth's pain with climate change, with our effects on the Earth, then it potentially affects their ability to hold on to this, this truth that they have, which is that the Bible should be interpreted literally. And when we when we as people, I don't care who you are, what faith tradition you come from, if your world is rocked by having to accept that something, a dogma that you have held on to you in your for your entire life and your entire community agrees on this dogma, and if you don't agree on this dogma, you're in danger of being excommunicated and removed from that society, that sociological construct, that place and belonging. <laughs> it is scary for us, for them, really. And so they resist it and justify the resistance in any way that they can and avoid it, including telling folks that um, even if they self-identify themselves as Christians, they really aren't. I don't, I think that's a scary thing for us as humans to do. If you believe in the Christian tradition that God was humanly formed by the life of Jesus, Jesus has a special ability then to judge other humans because he's God. He's not humans. And within his Within his life, we can see him passing judgment on other humans, but we don't ever see him giving humans license to judge other humans. In fact, we see exactly the opposite in his teachings. We see his teachings 
say, judge not lest he be judged. that we all, as humans, have shortcomings and we should not be telling each other that our religious context is wrong or that we're wrong. And that's why today I'm being so careful to say that my context, how I've understood this growing up in the sort of a hybrid of new evangelicalism and fundamentalist Christian sects in America, and this idea that we re really need to reject any reading of the Bible that's not literal, that's, I think, baggage for me. Um, and if anybody else doesn't see that as baggage, I don't want to pass judgment on you. You have a relationship with your God that you need to work out. And just like I do. Um, but the fact is that regularly within the fundamentalist and new evangelical traditions, because I'm in, I've been in those sects, so I know sociologically that regularly, if you don't have a literal interpretation of the Bible, um, or you raise concerns around these things, really in the way I'm doing it, so I'm a little bit nervous because I don't want to, I don't want to be rejected. Um, but the base of this conflict really is sociological. I think, and it should be approached as such, if I'm rejected for these ideas from new evangelical and fundamentalist circles, it's because there's a sociological need to remove me from the group, to protect the group think. If the group think is, we need a literal interpretation of the Bible to line up everything we need to believe, to feel safe with each other. And that's something that as I seek truth, I have to be willing to accept if, if that happens. And I think lastly, I'll, 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 I'll sum up with a couple of notes, I think. One interesting bit of, of sociological modern, um, evidence for my claims today, for my ideas, comes from a documentary that I watched, and I forget the name, otherwise I'd link to it, I'd find it and I'd link to it. It's a really interesting documentary about nuclear energy, actually. And it's not about nuclear energy, it's actually about the problem of coming up with a design life cycle for how we store nuclear waste in a way that protects Mother Earth protects humans as a species and other animals as a species, as species. How do we protect ourselves? And they talk in the documentary about shooting into the space um, so that we can remove it from our planet. Uh, they talk about burying it way below the earth, you know, into the earth's crust in these deep, dark holes that have cement and are very protected and they talk about the pros and the cons of all these things. And one of the most interesting things that really made me think so, in, you know, made me think about all these things is that they had the problem. They could see within human historical record that languages have a life cycle and they will end and change and permutate. And they couldn't guarantee that 
the people and the languages that they spoke would be our modern languages by the time humans find these deep dark holes and so they were coming trying to come up with if that's the as one example so they were trying to come up with ways to like build drawings um, and symbolism to mark on these caves hey humans don't go in here this is a scary place bad things happen in here um, and to mythologize these vaults to keep nuclear waste in and that's that symbology that you know pictor picture of of knowledge is exactly what we see in mythological records we see those in cave paintings we see that in the human tradition of trying to pass on knowledge that transcends language um, and allows us to to really pass on knowledge that is so old it spans hundreds of thousands of years and sometimes it spans really big purges of humanity right we don't have a lot of historical records around a lot of these ruins that we find and we know that there were humans there that did, did a lot of things and we can we can we know a lot of things that they did but those are mostly recent humans and we know that humans go back a lot farther than that and we just have a lot of opacity for those humans even though they lived very full lives um okay and then um to add another note of personal applied truth now the real question i um, and those who identify with this new evangelical christian tradition of reading the bible literally um, that's one of the things i'm trying to let go of at least all the bible some of the bible sure you can read it literally it's 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 helpful because it's real humans recording real things that they said uh, granted um, you know we, it requires some faith from us to believe that none of the things those humans said the claims they said were wrong it was all god inspired if we're going to believe it without question um, certainly that's not something i'm willing to do with my words i believe i'm wrong all the time which is why i keep on disclaiming so much on this podcast that these ideas I'm sharing have probably a ton missing from them and a lot of, of, of wrongness. It's just the best I can do right now. <laughs> uh, okay, so what I and people who are, grew up in my tradition um, or sex are left with is, did John, so now future, the in that in the, the world of new evangelical and fundamentalism, John's prophecy of Armageddon, of Revelation, found in the Bible, is somewhere in the future. Now, some Christian traditions might say that these events, these prophecies, are in the past. I don't really know. Um, uh, and there are some traditions that wouldn't even identify as Christian, but that take a lot of the Bible as part of their tradition, part of their holy scriptures. And they read it completely differently than Christians would read it. And yet it's still part of their tradition. Um, but so in, in the evangelical fundamentalist tradition, John's revelation, John's um, 
prophecy of Armageddon is in the future. This is a, a prophecy, right? Um, and so the question is, did John get all of his end of the world revelation from a, a true knowledge, a big picture perspective? Um, did he know this stuff? Was it passed on to him from Jesus or from his parents? Did he, this is like big picture wisdom. And so he knew he could see that the earth was going to go through this cycle um, of pain and rebirth and needing to purge with a flood or with Armageddon, right? These very, these things that wipe out um, humanity almost. And we have to start over. Um, did he understand that big picture perspective or was his revelation miraculous and completely unexplainable to him and to everybody else? And it was real truth. Um, and he just knew it was important and that he had to write it down. Or was he taught um, these things by other smart people in his life, as I've alluded to, as we have all been taught about these important myths and stories and knowledge. Um, and furthermore, if, if that claim is correct, then did John interpret the earth's physical evidence of his day to be able to inform his revelation and be able to understand all of this? Because, you know, the earth should carry historical record. Mother Earth has been with us from the beginning. God created is, if we believe God is external to Mother Earth, to us, to Father Time, um, and is not a part of those things, as many believe, is completely external and this is all just his creation. Well, he created all of us at the, all of these things at the beginning. Um, so we should be able to see markings and historical record on the earth, on Father Time. Our human experience should inform some of these things. And so, as a human, John should be able to, to understand that, that as well, correct? To With a limited understanding, perhaps, if he had less technology and, and knowledge than us. I think that's a very arrogant thing that we think we know more than the ancients. Um, I think we know different things in the ancients, but I think the ancient peoples certainly had a lot of knowledge um, that we don't have, that we learn about, that they had. And we're surprised by that. Like, whoa, we can really learn from the ancients. That's great. I, I, we got to give those humans credit as being fully human, with fully human thoughts and not just idiots. Not very much knowledge. We have to accept that our knowledge is opaque as well. Um, so did John, was it a miracle that he understood all this? Or was he taught all this? Um, or is it some, or was it really this ex completely external God and it was a miraculous revelation that he had from God or from the being that knows everything. And John wrote it down because he was compelled to, because he was following his own unique individual creative expression. And the words were flowing from his gut instincts and coming out even though they didn't make sense to him. And um, he really saw the future. 
Or maybe he felt like it was God giving him these things. And it was really just him making it up. Um, and he liked it so much, he wrote it all down. And if anyone listens, great. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know John. Um, but he did these things. He Or or we believe he wrote these things down, and pa- passed it on to us, and all the Christian fathers included revelation in the Holy Scriptures of the Christian tradition for some reason. So this, the implication of all this for me and for people like me that might identify with these things I'm saying um, is that there is some simple link and deep truth that each of us, I think, this is just, again, me personally. I think John lived a full life because he wrote these things down. He was embracing something by writing it down. And, you know, all of us other humans that are either believing John literally or mythologically, you know, adding any credence to what his words were as a fellow human, we're doing that knowing he was a fellow human. And we're doing that taking by faith that God, some external God, um, gave him that to write down. Uh, Or... John made it all up. Um, Either way, it provides us an example from John's life of this deep truth that we as humans, or at least I could say this about myself, is that I need to embrace, and I think humans need to do this. I see this as a deep human need. Um, And I'd be interested in others' opinion on this. This is another claim I think I'll leave us with, is that we have a deep human need to embrace our own unique creative expression. And when we embrace our own unique creative expressions, miraculous things happen. And it's up to each of us to understand and to get to know what our own unique creative expressions are. Because many times we as humans, or at least this is what I did for a long time in my life, are unwilling to get to know ourselves and to know what our our deeply held, unique creative expressions are. And we try and take on the humans around us, their unique creative expressions that we respect and admire. What are those humans doing? And we try and latch on to doing some of their creative expressions as our own uh, to validate right, to, um, to be able to tell ourselves, well, I really respect this person, and they're doing this, so if I do this, then I'll gain some of the goodness that they have in their life. And I think that's false. At least I've found it to be false. When I let other people's lives dictate how I leave, live, or at least how I find fulfillment and produce creatively, right, um, then my life has more greed, hate, fear, guilt, negative emotions. And when I embrace and try and get to know myself and produce my own unique creative expression, I feel fulfillment and peace and love and joy and goodness being brought into my life in a fullness that 
spills out of me into other people's lives and into the world around me. I'm no longer no longer hard for me or stressful for me when I see other people hurting the earth through their actions of driving cars instead of riding a bike or because I drive a car instead of riding a bike or I mean this is the thing that kills me buying a new car that's a hybrid or an electric car and continuing to consume new things I mean we do that as humans we and not everybody but we do that as humans we despite our best efforts um, we even when we're trying to do good we do bad things not, and not always right I'm I I believe in a lot of Jesus's teachings and I believe in his teaching that let him who is without sin cast the first stone yeah that is a beautiful part of his message and I'm gonna cry on this recording I think maybe because I almost did because of how beautiful that teaching is of Jesus's and how I want that in my life and when I have that in my life when I'm not casting stones at others um, because I know I have sinned when I'm real with myself about that my life is fuller and better and that is a truth that I can add to my life as well from learning all of this. So that's the podcast episode for today. Um, my thoughts on climate change, Mother Earth, and uh, the potential opacity of our limited human knowledge in being able to understand where we're at in a cycle of Earth and her need to purge and renew, reset, and the connections between that and our myths, our religious myths, our are the physical evidence imprints that we and and ruins and fossil records and things like that that we see on the Earth's surface, and how we could tie it all together and find the archetypal truths that transcend individual sex and sociological groups among us as humans and what is archetypally true across our human experience from a historical and geographic and societal cultural and language context. Thank you for joining us. I'd be really interested in your feedback. I've been getting some feedback. A lot of it's very encouraging. Um, and some of it is helping me identify what I believe and what I don't believe. So that's even helpful feedback, even though some of it has been hard to hear. Um, it's been good to hear where I differ from others. And I'm not afraid of that. So if you have differing opinions um, and would like to share those, even if you share them out of fear, you're fearful that I believe something that will send me to hell um, or that I'm spouting ideas that are dangerous, I want to hear that. And I'm interested in the perspective. So please feel free to call me, reach out to me if you know me personally. I'm on all the social medias. If you don't know me in any of those contexts and you'd still like to get in touch with me, if you go to anchor.fm slash a simple life on that page, that's the podcast page, and Anchor has a cool feature that I've enabled where you can record yourself sending me a, an audio message. And it can be your opinion or your response to this. And I'd love to 
have that and you can say in that response if you feel like your response is something you want to share with other listeners and I could include it in a you know a response episode to this um, or if you want it to just be a personal message between you and me feel free if you want it to be a personal message to say that in your recording and I will keep the message to myself I won't even mes- mention that I received it other than in general terms um, if you don't tell me you want me to keep it private and just between us, I'll assume that that feedback is something that I can share on this podcast um, and that you welcome that, being you, adding your voice to the discussion. And you understand that adding your voice, um, at least from my perspective, gives me room to accept or reject it, but it doesn't require me to believe you or to reject you. It's you're adding to the context and you understand the theme of this podcast is not to get it completely right or completely wrong, um, but to just do the best we can. So thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed recording myself today. This was a longer one for a solo show for me. And, and we've reached the conclusion. have it episode eight is uh done i really enjoyed the process um in thinking through and making this episode but uh part of me is also concerned because i tread on areas where i really could be hurting other people with the content these things are so polarizing for us and i don't want to hurt anybody and also there's just an element of concern that um, this is boring because we've all heard this stuff a lot. <laughs> um, sometimes it feels like too much. Uh, but I trust if you've made it this far, you, you chose that. So maybe I just got to let go of that hurt or that fear. Um, also want to just say in closing, there is no sponsor for this show, for this episode. If you want to support A Simple Life with Michael Jeffries, um, consider making a donation of a Culligan water subscription or a Berkey water filter or something similar to a family who lives in Michigan or one of the other many areas in the world where manufacturing and agricultural industries have harmed Mother Earth to the point that she's now giving us poisonous water to drink. Um, If you do decide to make a donation of something like that, and this show had any part in motivating you to do that, it would really mean a lot for me to know that so that I can... I can have some some support in continuing to let go of this fear that I have that I'm I'm hurting somebody or people with with uh, the the content of this episode. Um, and if you don't tell me, that's okay too. Thank you again, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully have another episode another time. Yeah.